Sunday here in any sort of official capacity for Brittany and I. And the next time I walk through those doors, it will be as a visiting friend. It will be as someone returning with, you know, a story about what God is doing. You know, an opportunity that I had or that I thought I had that was, you know, not my opportunity to have. And when you're making a transition in life, you stop and think of what are the certainties in life. And right now, Brittany and I are probably in not the most uncertain of times, but we're in a fairly transitional time. You know, I'm, I'm graduating from seminary. She's in an interim coaching job. I've applied to four different churches with four more on the horizon, spanning from Sacramento to Boston to middle of Michigan to southern Indiana. I don't know which state or which time zone I'm going to land in. I don't know if I'll be a associate pastor, family pastor, youth pastor, lead pastor, church planter. I'm not sure. But there's one thing that I believe I am sure and that every Christ follower can be sure of, and that is Jesus Christ is with me the entire time. And here at Crosswinds, we have two emphasis. Jesus Christ is central, and we love our neighbors. So I was just trying to think about, in this transition time, that which I have certainty of, and also that which is central to Crosswinds. And the one thing that just kept on coming up was Jesus Christ. He is all that we have, and He is all that we can have certainty of. I mean, this holiday season kind of put that to very much a certain picture for Brittany and I. We thought we were going to have a wonderful Christmas Eve with her family, and, you know, going to wake up on Christmas Day just well-rested and open up more presents. Instead, we spent the night not necessarily happy or healthy. (laughs) And... The next couple of days, you know, there was miscommunication with times, with family Christmases, and it seemed like, you know, all that was certain of a happy Christmas wasn't really there, but then things got salvaged, and, you know, yet again, you know, things came out all right. But as we were looking at Christmas, family holidays might not go as planned. You might not get the gifts you want. You might not have the money to buy a gift that you want. But Jesus Christ still came. He still walked, and we, as Christ followers, had the guarantee of him with us. But it gets really abstract sometimes, thinking about Jesus Christ. We're told to be Christ, live as Christ, image Christ, bring the kingdom ethics. And the Lord's Prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done as part of our prayer. But what does that really mean? I think sometimes, as preachers, we do a, a, a disservice to people. You know, uh, especially in seminary, I can learn, you know, 52 different Greek words and Latin words and Hebrew words for the same thing that, you know, 25 people in Grand Rapids understand what they mean. And except we don't, because we'll write papers arguing what they mean. And then we'll use them in some sermon or some message, and people are like, okay, thanks, you know, Jesus is with me, I'm supposed to be Jesus, but what does that mean? And so, I think... We'll walk through what it means to have Jesus with us, but more so what it means to be Jesus to our neighbors by looking at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. And so, you know, let's read them. Paul says this, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must 
no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. As we read this passage, hopefully you guys see this overarching arc where, you know, almost, when I read it, it kind of goes back to the Garden of Eden, flashes forward through today, where you have creation, where God created good, there's a fall, humanity's fallen, it needs a, a redeemer, the redeemer comes, gives humanity an opportunity to be restored to its rightful place, and then there's this longing for the consummation of God to bring his kingdom here on earth. And this passage almost has that, that arc right there. And that, but when I read it, it starts off with a paragraph that, now the first couple of verses, if I'm honest with you, I want to argue with Paul just a little bit. But I know I shouldn't. Because he says that we shouldn't walk as the Gentiles do because they're darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And, you know, they have hard hearts and they're callous and, you know, they've given themselves up to every sort of wicked thing. And I say, Paul, you don't know the unsaved people that I do. You know, like, people really aren't that bad. You know, I want to I look sideways and go, don't you know my friends who volunteer at the hospital? Wait, don't you know my buddy who who cares more about you know, his neighbors and this world than most people in the church. And I, want to just, I want to push that, Paul, and say, wait, are people really that bad? Because this passage starts off saying, don't walk as the Gentiles do or don't live as the Gentiles do. And you see, I want to live like the people in the world live. So whenever I read this paragraph, every time I read it, I get a little upset with Paul because he's pushing against what's comfortable with me. I think as Christians and Christ followers, we have to recognize that our comfort zone in life really is not where we should stay. It's, it's hard in this transitional time of life to really even know what comfort is for Brittany and I. And I think, 
all of you can probably agree, there's times where we don't know what the right attitude or the right way of life is, and we'll say, well, what's comfortable is what we'll do. And what I think we usually think is comfortable is by saying, what does that person do? 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 And that person, and how do I not stand out among them? Now, like, here it talks about just different areas of saying they have become callous and give them, given themselves up to sensuality, greed, impurity, and different sinful desires there. And it makes me think about the unsaved person has a, a term called a worldview or a life philosophy that revolves around self. And so often, I think about how it's easy to say, well, that person only thinks about themselves. Well, forget, where do I get all my life philosophies, my ways of thinking, my ways of reasoning? Think with this through me. Where did you learn what was right and what was wrong? And where did those people learn what was right and wrong that you learned from them? Or where did you learn how to properly interact with your finances? Where did you learn how to interact with your spouse or when you're dating? How did you learn what was the right way to interact with the opposite gender? Or how did you learn the right way to, to work? Where did your work ethic come from? Who taught you when it was right to take a break? Think about who taught you what was the right thing to laugh at. I, I think about how a, a vivid illustration in my mind is in high school. I, there were times whenever I was with friends and there would be a movie on or a joke would be said, and I'd feel really, really uncomfortable. I'm like... I don't know if I should laugh at this. You guys ever have that situation where you're, you know, someone says something and you're like, ah, but you look around and you see your best friend, maybe your older brother, maybe a teammate that you really respect, and you know what? They're laughing. And you're like, well, maybe it's all right to laugh at this. And, you know, the, I, I like to think that that was just a high school thing. But that happened in college, and that happened in the year after college, and that's happened in seminary. And if I'm honest, that's probably happened within the last 24 hours. And I say that for the few students here who haven't graduated high school, that the peer pressure that you have to try to conform to those around you, it doesn't go away. It, it can change its face a little bit, you know. Maybe in middle school you feel you should act one way than in high school. You know, a different thing's pushed, and you guys have all been through different generations where, you know, the 80s look this way, the 90s look this way, the 1000s, and now the 2010s look a different way. But you will still always have this pressure to conform to the way of thinking of those around you. But this passage, Paul says that you need to recognize that there is a false way of thinking and a false way of interacting with the world. And that is part of the broken nature inherent by being in a broken world. But as someone who claims the name of Christ, you are told to instead put on a new way of thinking. 
put on a new way of interacting with this world. We are not supposed to look sideways for our way of thinking and acting. We're supposed to look heaven-bound. And it's awkward here to really think about this is also where you might also have to start moving away from family habits and patterns. As much as I want to say that each one of you comes from the perfect home and the perfect family and the perfect background, there needs to come a time in life where you ask, am I doing things just because my family did it? Or am I doing things because I'm putting on the new nature in Christ, which I have received? So Paul moves forward then, though. He says... To put off the old self, in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, and to put on the new self, created at the likeness of God, and in true righteousness and holiness. And if we're honest, the term put on the new self is about as foreign of a concept as us, or abstract of a concept, as I can think of. When I think of putting on something, I think of putting on clothes, or, you know, maybe a nice suit. But is Jesus a pair of Nikes or, you know, a suit that I can just put on when I want? No. Jesus isn't also just some act either. I think often whenever we think of being Christians, we think of acting like Christ. But, I mean, how many of you have done theater? A few of you have. I've actually produced a, a feature-length film with my buddies in high school. And uh, that was acting. I am not friend Glenn. I am also not pro-happy Darth Vader. Those are people I acted as. Someday you might get to see that movie if you want to pay $5 and you know, buy popcorn. Uh, but, but I think the easier thing for us to associate with is how many of you, you know, you know someone who has a favorite athlete and they have that jersey. You know, the, uh, in, the, in the 90s, you know, people, whenever a kid took a jump shot, and, you know, Jordan, and then it later became Kobe, and now it will become Curry. But for me, my favorite NBA player right now is the Dallas Mavericks forward Dirk Nowitzki. He's been in the league 18 years. He's an NBA All-Star countless times. NBA MVP, NBA Finals MVP, you know, he's, he's a tall, seven-foot German guy. I'm like, you know what? I'm tall. I'm of Germanic descent. He's goofy. He had shaggy hair. Why wouldn't I like to be this guy? And a few years ago, one of my brothers bought me, for Christmas, a Dirk Nowitzki jersey. See, there's a Christmas connection. And, you know, I, I cherish this jersey, so I don't wear it often. But occasionally, I'll play basketball on it. I'll put on this jersey, I'll put on a nice pair of shorts, put on, you know, masking shoes, a sweatband, just because you have to wear a sweatband. Sorry for those who are opposed to sweatbands. Um, But no matter how many pump fakes I I do, no matter how many awkward one-leg jump shots, for those who are aware, Dirk, he he looks like a pelican when he plays basketball. It's, It's not fluid, it's not beautiful, but he makes a lot of shots. Do I become Dirk Nowitzki by putting on a jersey? No. This idea of putting on Christ would be more like this. Putting on a jersey onto a dead mummy 
and having that mummy coming to life and start playing basketball. We have to recognize that as we put on Christ, we are actually taking our old, dead, sinful habits and living out the new way of Christ and letting His holiness and righteousness live through us. This isn't an act that we're trying to do when we put on Christ. Though I'm about to go through a list of things that can easily seem or become an act. Living out Christ and putting on Christ is knowing Jesus, which if you haven't repented and followed him as Lord, you can't really know him, the start of the passage talks about. But it's also hard to know him if you haven't spent time in the Bible reading of him and about him, sharing testimony with those who followed him, and if you haven't spent time in prayer with him. So I want to just get that out on the board. It's hard to put on Christ if you don't even know who he is. And we put on Christ by living out the life of Christ and his nature and his holiness and his goodness. So I don't, want you to, I don't want us to think going forward as people who are about Christ and loving our neighbors that it's an act, that we're acting like Christ in our neighborhoods. We are supposed to be living out Jesus Christ. And, if, and this is a daily struggle and daily battle. And if we trade living out Christ for the old self, which is the easy choice, we give up on the glorious opportunities that are actually reflecting the glory of the incarnate God amongst our neighborhood. So let's read verses 25 through 32, which are actually a short description of what it means to put on Christ. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. The list of the things that you are supposed to put on and put off, you will find this in any kindergarten, first, second, third grade classroom. You would find it as a list of things that Team 21 wants the kids to follow. You would find this in any, any place. These are things that you are supposed to not do, things you are supposed to do. But, What I want us to first look at and notice, as Paul talks about lying, stealing, corrupt speech, and anger, is that he doesn't give the reasons that are normally associated with this way of living. You see, you know, so often we don't do bad things because of various reasons. You're like, why do we follow the traffic laws? Sometimes if we're feeling good, it's because we don't want to endanger others. But usually it's, I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get a speeding ticket because I don't want to pay the ticket. And I don't want my insurance to rise. Very good and holy reasons. Or, why do I not want to lie to someone? Because they might catch me. That's a great reason. Or, you know, why should we not hit someone? Because they'll hit you back and they're bigger, stronger, faster and you'll get beat up. 
That's a wise reason not to hit someone. But is that a good reason? Or, you know, be nice to someone, so then you'll get in their good favor, and they'll buy you a nice Christmas present. And occasionally they'll take you out to eat. You know, like, we can think of all the different reasons why we should not lie to people, of why we should stop stealing. Hey, don't steal stuff. Because if you steal a big enough thing, it's a federal crime or yada, yada, yada. But we don't put away these false ways of living for the reasons that the world tells us to. We have to understand that as Christians, we are supposed to actually be living out the life of Christ around those that we're with. So let's, let's walk through this list. And, and each, of those, each of these things could merit an entire sermon. So I want you to understand this is not going to be an extensive discussion on lying, on stealing, and all the other vices listed. But rather, I want you guys to think about how this is a flip of the way of life as someone who is not following Christ versus what we are supposed to be doing as one living as Christ. The first here says, put off falsehood. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have told some lies, and done some very false things. And I have tried to come up with any and every reason possible to not tell the truth or to justify that lie. It's really easy to try to come up with reasons. But this passage says that lying hurts those around us. It hurts your community. See, as believers, we are supposed to understand that we are the body of Christ. And a lie is falsehood and death. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as someone who puts forth a, a lie, you are doing the exact opposite and living contrary to the very one that you're following. And that can only breed death and destruction in the community and yourself. Usually, we can just overlook a few lies. You say, oh, it was a a half lie. Oh, it was was a white lie. But you recognize the repeated word there is a lie. And I'm not here to be your conscience, but I want you to recognize that You don't put away lying just so that way you're not caught in a fib. Because sometimes the best thing you can do is to be caught in a lie because it confronts you with the reality that you aren't living as you should. I know one of the most freeing moments in this last semester was actually admitting to a professor that I had said something false on a a paper semesters ago. I was scared. I thought I was actually going to get kicked out of seminary. I thought that I was going to be failed and never be able to go into the pastoral realm, which I'd been trading for for almost a decade. But instead, that truth and living in the truth provided an opportunity for grace and forgiveness. So many of us are probably hiding a lie. But we need to recognize that a lie is not something that needs to be covered up. It needs to be something that's admitted to people. Because, as we're going to talk about later... (coughs) In the community of Christ, forgiveness is expected. But it's expected because that's what's been given to us. But, remember, we tell truth because we are living out the life 
of Jesus, who is truth and life amongst others around us. Next, Paul says, but the one who steals, steal no longer. I'm going to skip anger and address that in the end there with forgiveness. So, Paul says, don't steal, but rather let someone work hard that they can give to others. I think it's really, 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 really incredibly easy as Christians to have a false view of work. And I say this with complete honesty that I've fallen into the trap of thinking that there are a dozen or so jobs that are holy, beautiful, cherished, you know, esteemed, and then everything else is just what you do to pay a bill. Paul wants the Christ follower to recognize that we're supposed to, yes, put off stealing, which is doing what you can to meet your ends, to view stuff as yours and to not look at others. So instead, you work as an opportunity to be a blessing to others. And it returns back to the, the Genesis story. Work was created before the fall. Work is an inherently good and beautiful thing. It's what we are were, we were meant as, as humans to work. But in a fallen world, sometimes that doesn't happen. That's a sad truth and sad reality. But as believers, we, we step forward into the work world recognizing that a bus driver is on equal footing with a person who runs a press, as with the president, as with a pastor, as with a nurse, as with a daycare provider, as with a dog walker. Fill in the blank. When someone's working hard, they are giving an opportunity to bless others by providing financial, physical, material, or any other means to others. Now, as a Christ follower, I want you guys just to recognize that we view work not as just an end to a means, a means to an end, but as a means to bless others. Even if it's just blessing our family, blessing the electric company by paying the bill. I mean, like, we need to view work as a different opportunity than just a means to an end. But it works forward into... Paul spends a long time here talking about speech. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Then, then even here, whenever it talks about anger, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. A Christian views their speech with the utmost importance and significance. And James talks about speech causing a, being the same as a spark that can cause a wildfire. But I think so often as Christ followers, we can, we can try to find the picture of Jesus that we want to defend our way of speaking, or, or find the person that we respect and say, they're like this. And I want you guys to, be, to know this, that my, my favorite picture of Jesus is when Jesus was flipping over the tables in the money market, yelling at people. You know, I, I think there's this false conception that you know, all the seminarians, like the fluffy, you know, kind Jesus who has perfect hair, sipping a, a soy latte, 
You know, like, but that's not, that's not the reality. Each of us have a different picture that we, that we falsely want to say that this is Jesus. And I want to be the person who's the truth, the truth teller that tells you when you're wrong, what you're doing wrong, and absolutely blows people away. And you know, I, mean, I, I can say, well, I've, I've spoken all truth here. Yeah, yeah, and if I, if I know someone that I don't like and someone asks me something about them, I, you know, not only do I have a list of things, but I have a list of descending order of their worst, their worst characteristics that I can tell you about anyone. This is a fallen thing. I don't want you guys to think that I'm supporting this. But, in this passage, it talks about as believers, we're supposed to think twice about what we say and how we say it. Because, just saying something without understanding if it has a positive or negative effect on someone does not reflect the fact that we are representing Jesus Christ who is life. Jesus didn't come just to restore things to a state of neutral. Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. And as those who are Christ followers and who worship him and want to live as him and to put him on in our neighborhood... We have to recognize that our way of speaking needs to be one that brings life to others. It needs to edify, build them up, and encourage them. And you know what this also encompasses? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, Vimeo, YouTube, Pinterest, and any other social media. I'm sure there's 18 more that I'm just not on. WordPress, uh, yeah, fill in the blank. Um, because it's easy to think, person A needs to hear this message that I'm, here, that I, that I'm posting about, and they're going to be blown away by it. It's easy. I, we, I think all of us at some time have fallen into the trap of thinking that one thing that we say or post or do, doesn't have to be on social media necessarily, is going to just, boom, show someone how stupid they were for thinking that. Well, what does it do to really show someone that they were stupid? If we are people who know not just what is stupid, but what is beautiful, glorious, life-giving, and joyous. We as Christ followers are not supposed to be people who just cut others down but we're supposed to be people who look to build others up. And this is not to say that there aren't supposed to be times whenever you rebuke someone in sin, that you confront someone when they're doing something wrong. But I want to speak as someone who is so often, I think, quicker to do that than I should, and I, I will do it in a manner that I should not, that for me, I need to think twice if I'm, if I'm about to confront someone. Earlier, Paul speaks about speak, says, speak the truth in love. We have to have that, that question of, are we doing stuff in a manner of love? I think in relationships, this is an incredibly vital aspect to think about our, our words and our speech. You know, it, sometimes it's easy to think, well, I just said something rude to a complete stranger and they're going to walk away, you know, and that, whatever. Well, actually, it's, it's probably... For me, it hurts me more that some stranger has a bad view of me, but I can quickly say something to a spouse or a family member. But remember, you are picturing Christ in your family, to people. You are supposed to be Christ to others. You are supposed to represent love, life, and truth to them. 
So, for those of you who are on social media, this is a challenge. The next time before you tweet or post or Insta or however you want to put it, think twice if this is something that is going to be tearing others down or if it actually has the purpose of building other people up. So as a Christ follower who's put on Christ, I think that is an actual thought that needs to go into it. And finally, this passage, I'm going to move into the discussion of we are not supposed to be angry, but we're supposed to forgive. I think verse 26 and verse 27 go really well actually into verses 31 and 32. So I'm just going to read this again because if I'm honest with you, I think reading Scripture is more important than almost any word that I will say. So the repetition of these verses can't hurt any of us. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and, clam- and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How many of you, you know, you have, it's easy to say with your kids I've done this, but how many of you remember as kids being told, say I'm sorry and say I forgive you to your sibling or to another small child and you say it because that teacher or parent made you say it. And if we're honest, I think that's what we still do a lot of times. We view forgiveness as a social interaction that causes peace. I just want to keep the peace. So I'm going to say I'm sorry because I don't want person B to be angry at me. This passage talks about rethinking why we forgive. It says, you're supposed to forgive because God and Christ forgave you. And as we dwell upon that reality, we're able to actually humble ourselves in our interactions with one another. We're able to have a heart of compassion and a heart of forgiveness towards others. Because... There is nothing a person can do against you that's worse than what you've done against God. And God has already forgiven you. This is not an easy thing. I mean, it's simple. Oh, God's forgiven you so you can forgive others. But think about it. In that, in, in that moment, when someone angers you, because anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong, whether an actual or a false perception of what is wrong. Anger is the response to that. In that moment when you respond, you actually have the ability to think, why am I angry? And actually also think, why did this person do it? I think so often it's easy to, you know, for me, I want to say, well, I responded back in anger because you did this, this, and this. And, you know, you didn't approach me the right way. I... I unfortunately say that a lot, where I'm like, well, you know, if you had said this the right way to me, I wouldn't have been mad back at you. Which is stupid of me, uh, because there's a better way. When someone wrongs you, remember, we are living in a fallen world where people have a broken reality. And you also have a brokenness inside of you. You can understand, I am weak, and I need Jesus, and they are weak, and they need Jesus too. So in that moment... 
I know it's hard to think, wow, I thought all that in a moment. But in that moment, actually think through your weakness and sympathize with them in their weakness. This isn't saying, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want to me, because I think sometimes we think forgiveness is weakness, and if we're weak to someone, then they're just going to walk all over us for the rest of our life. Maybe, maybe not. But because of the grace God gave us, we are able to actually see other people's weakness and put on Christ and have an attitude of forgiveness towards them. We don't just simply brush aside wrongdoings. This says nothing about not admitting that you were hurt. This is saying forgive others and have a tender heart and a compassionate heart. Actually feel their pain. Understand why they would do something and say, hey, I understand. I forgive you. And the power of that, war, of that phrase, I forgive you, could potentially change that person's day. But so often we get caught up in the old way of thinking, which is, I was wrong, I was hurt, I'm going to get my revenge, I'm going to, I think the, the phrase is, I'm going to get mines, or, no, has someone else heard that? Or am I just off on a, maybe it's a, a Sturgis thing. Um, or, I'm going to make you take a dose of your own medicine. That isn't the Christ attitude. The Christ attitude is forgiving. And so, as we're moving forward into this new year, as Brittany and I are moving into an incredibly transitional time of life where we know about as much of the future as you guys do, I want you guys to remember that as a church that loves Jesus and wants to love our neighbors, that these are ways that we can start by putting on Christ by putting on an attitude of speech that edifies others, speech that is focused on truth, by viewing work and our interactions with others as an opportunity to bless, and by being compassionate with one another. It's easy to have the New Year's resolution of losing weight or you know, drinking more water or fill in, fill in the blank, and those are all good. You know, I'm all for exercise and, and proper living. But I want us to think about also adding into that of knowing Jesus more, and living him out in our neighborhood. Pray with me.